Our eyes continually failed, looking for some help, but for nothing. From our watchtower we watched, for a nation that doesn't save. Our steps were tracked, we could no longer walk in our streets. Our end had drawn near, our days were done. Our end had definitely come. Our hunters were faster than airborne eagles. They chased us up the mountains. They ambushed us in the wilderness. The Lord's chosen one, the very breath in our lungs, was caught in their traps. The one we used to talk about saying, under his protection we'll live among the nations. Rejoice and be happy, daughter Edom, you who live in the land of Uz. But this cup will pass over to you too. You will get drunk on it. You will be stripped naked. Your punishment is over, daughter Zion. God won't expose you anymore. But he will attend to your punishment, daughter Edom. He will expose your sins. Pray with me. Uh, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Um, Lord, by your spirit, open our hearts um, to hear uh, your word and and open our lives uh, to your will. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I took four years of college-level Spanish in high school but I can't speak Spanish. <laughs> Every once in a while, I, I'll kind of say some Spanish words to Noah, um, especially to Noah, because she, she, she likes an audience herself, so she is my prime audience. And she'll look at me like I'm speaking crazy talk. Like, she, the more she's, like, around Spanish speakers or, like, watches Dora, like, every once in a while she'll... She'll say, is that Spanish, Dad? And that's become her question whenever I say something she doesn't understand, is that Spanish, Dad? But (laughs) all of this has shown me a couple things. I don't think I ever really knew Spanish (laughs) that well, even though I passed the test. um, I was always kind of a tourist and never a native. I was always academic in my approach, but never really fully invested. It's taught me that learning a language in a way that you can't only just understand it, I can understand a little bit of it, but also that you can, you can use it requires a lot of time and a lot of investment, a lot of work, and, and actually probably immersion is the best way to know a language. It's also taught me that when you use language piecemeal, like when it's here or there, when it's without context, it kind of sounds crazy, <laughs> like that's what Noah taught me, that it's unintelligible, that, that when you talk like this, the accent can be really wrong, or like you, you don't know how to roll your R's right, and like some words that you say sound like they're from Spain, but others sound like they're from like Colombia, you know, like you don't have like the nuance. Sometimes the nouns and the articles don't agree and the verbs don't conjugate right. Like that's novice language stuff right there. Like you're just not doing it well because you're not fluent. Fluency requires conversation. Influency requires conversation partners. 
So why are we talking about learning a language in the middle of Lent? Well, as we continue this Lenten study of Lamentations, I want y'all to consider biblical lament as a language to begin to learn or for some of us to continue to learn. One theologian has asked, what house is it to which the Bible is the door and what country is spread before our eyes when we spread the, the, what country is spread before our eyes when we throw the Bible open? So we enter into a house. We enter into a new strange world with a new language. For some of us, these words and lamentation might feel like high school Spanish. Like, <laughs> like you, you kind of, they're familiar, but they're not fluent. For others of us, they might sound like my Spanish does to Noah, like without context or inappropriate. I think that's one of the reasons why we don't have a lot of sermons on lamentation. Um, that's why we don't bring it up very well. But my, my kind of thesis that I'm working with here is that learning a language is some sort of some sort of analogy for the Christian life. That, that as, as we continue to grow, we, we grow in fluency. We grow in this thing that once wasn't natural to us, but then becomes natural because we, we've put in the work and we've immersed ourselves. We, we're having conversations and we're learning more and more vocabulary and more and more nuance. And we're able to embody that even better. A, a biblical scholar puts it, Learning, the learning of a language in the present is that which will equip us to speak fluently in God's new world. The new world that God is making now and the new world to come. So today, lamentation is one of those dialects we need to learn. And I think maybe a quintessential way for Christians to talk. Like that, for, for some of us this morning that have grown up Christian and in certain sorts of churches and Christian expressions, the sentence, lamentation is the best quintessential, most faithful way for Christians to talk is a really strange claim to make, right? In some ways, I think that lamentations doesn't make its way into our corporate life too much because it depicts wreckage in like, we have short attentions for wreckage. Like it comes across the news and like, for instance, the other night, that fire in Raleigh. Ha have you guys seen pictures of this Raleigh fire? This apartment building in Raleigh caught fire and these pictures were unbelievable, but I haven't seen any pictures about the smoke damage from the fire after that, right? Just the flames of the night before. A Lamentation scholar, Kathleen O'Connor, talks about this wreckage, God's people's headspace amidst the collapse of their city, the place of God's promise and presence. She says, this is how they were feeling. She says, if God rescues, liberates, and protects as their cherished biblical story tells them, how could such events happen? Like the chapter that we read today starts with this, this image of just everything precious to them, every sign of prosperity and wealth and, and safety and security strewn on the streets like, like pearls. <laughs> like the card that we're using this week has, has 
from a sidewalk in Durham bloodstains from a murder that just happened. Like, that is their image. She says, how could this happen? She says, if God dwells with them in the Jerusalem temple, if God makes covenants to them to be their God, how could these things happen? Even worse, why did God do these things to him, to them? Like a marriage after a bitter, unanticipated divorce, their shared story is in splinters, and there's no new story to replace it. The people's symbolic world collapsed along with their buildings. This is probably why we don't talk about lamentations in church too much, because to talk about it would to be talking about a collapse in which we don't have a whole lot of answers to. But first, if we're going to start learning this language, we need an immersion. We need a long, steady work of exposing ourselves to this language. It's tricky because we don't always feel this way. I think that's another obstacle to talking about lamentations, to learning the language, is just like sitting down to get in this space, even when we feel okay. Like, that's also probably why I've, I've quit, like, learning Spanish again, like, ten different times, because about February, I'm just not really feeling like learning Spanish anymore. It, it, it also, like, might feel a little strange, like it doesn't fit, right? Like an article of clothing that doesn't fit, or is a couple sizes too big or too small. But as we spoke about last week, last week we talked about fasting. Fasting is entering into the death of Christ. What if learning a language of lamentation not only helps us express the suffering that we do feel in the moment, but it also helps us participate in the suffering of others, and ultimately participating in the suffering and death and resurrection of Jesus? Like, what if learning lamentations helps tune us into and know Christ better? Because it, it was in his lamentation that he knew us best. Most of us don't suffer on a daily basis, though if you don't know anyone who's suffering, you probably don't know yourself very well. Like somewhere deep, there's some bit of suffering or insecurity there. But whether you're going through these things, it, it could be physical or or probably like the most common untold thing are, are these like emotional and psychological hurts or several of us just we suffer silently from anxiety or depression or past abuses haunt some of us. So many of the, these things go unaccounted for and by by tapping into the language of lamentation, we can start to express things that we never really dealt with, we never really touched, we never knew how to talk about. Lament gives many of us the language to ask God, how long? How long will this be this way? Let's us say on our own behalf, how long? But it also gives us the language to ask that for our friends. To... to to know that one of our friends is hurting and one of our friends is in a place that cannot continue this way and we can ask for them, we can ask God for them, how long? How long is, is not primarily a way just to wallow or like to sublimate pain. It's a way to direct suffering. 
so that even the most nonsense suffering has a purpose, or at least has a direction. We direct it to God because God made this world, and in Christ, God will redirect this world, including you and I, through suffering into healing and into shalom, into wholeness. So how long is an appropriate way to talk to God? It's a, the right amount of impatient and dissatisfied with how things currently are because it's not sustainable to stay that way. So we look to the one who we can trust to sustain us beyond ourselves, beyond our own resources, beyond even our best conceivable scenario. How long looks beyond that? This week, been surrounded by people um, whose worlds have had some of this collapse. Um, we talked about Meg and Matt, and that was, they could see that coming a little bit. Matt's grandfather was in his 90s and lived a long and faithful life. Um, we've had some other friends just suffer some kind of instability that they, they just didn't know didn't see coming and didn't know how to get out of. Um, after the sermon, Jay will come and give us an update on, on Bren's brother. Um, it, it just strikes me that more people than you'd assume are on the edge of collapse at any given time. And we've been given this body, and we'll talk a little bit more about this in a minute. We've been given this body of people to, to support that and to kind of subvert the silence around that so that we can share that with each other. We, we, we can enter into this with and for each other. I was also thinking on a, on a broader scale that, that this isn't just a personal thing for us. This isn't even just an Oak Church thing, uh, this learning the language of lament but this is this is a, a Christian thing and a something that transcends and crosses times and ge geographical boundaries I've drawn a lot of of knowledge and wisdom and, and understanding from uh, a Catholic Ugandan Catholic priest named Father Emmanuel Katangale he used to be a duke and now he's at Notre Dame he was one of the founders of the Duke Center for Reconciliation and he writes wonderfully ab about the violence in Uganda, but, but more about the aftermath. And, and, and also, um, he's taken a lot, of, a lot of pilgrimages to places like Rwanda following their genocide. And, and the question they're asking over and over, especially in these places that are very Christian places, is how do we move on? How do we go on? How long? And... Father Katangale wonders during one of these pilgrimages to Rwanda, what if the church was built upon lament? And why this question, I think, matters for us is because when, we're, when we get to that space, when someone dies or when, when something crazy happens that we don't know how to, to, to process we, and we don't even know if it's ever going to end or if it's ever going to be right, we're, we, we struggle to understand how we could possibly rebuild from that. But if there's a way to, to be based upon and build out of and through suffering, through lament, like 
we have massive possibilities for for renewal for for restoration for healing so he he writes about about what if the church especially the the Rwandan church or the Ugandan church but I, I'd say the American church or, or hopefully our church what if we were built around this lament in in that context he he's talking about um, he's building off this how long of these martyrs these real life martyrs um, but he's he's joining their how long to the how long of Revelation 6 the martyrs under the altar whose lives were lost because of the word of God and their testimony because of their faithfulness Revelation 6 9 through 10 says how long sovereign Lord holy and true until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood so Father Katangale, I think there's a slide for this. It says, At Nyange, it became clear to me that the resurrection of the church begins with lament. And some of these laments, he, and, and this is a good exercise too as, as you learn the language because language is about reception and production. That you can sit down maybe in journal and write your own how longs. Write these things that you might direct to God, because we can we can often write a language before we can speak it well. Uh, it might sound weird when we talk it, but we we can sit down and write it. And so Father Katangale says, "How long, O oh God, will we go on with mock Christianity that takes the tribalism of our world for granted? How long, O oh God, will we be satisfied with the way things are?" How long, O oh God, will we try to, quote, make some difference in the world while leaving the basic patterns of the world unaffected? How long, O oh God, will we take consolation in numbers and in buildings and in structures when millions of your children are dying? How long, O oh sovereign Lord, will we remain blind to the lessons of history? He says, any resurrection of the church as the body of Christ must begin with lament, which is an honest look at the brokenness of the church. And that, that's also on a, on a microcosm, what lament does for us. It begins our resurrection in Christ by reckoning with the brokenness of our lives and attaching them not just to our own death, but to the death of Jesus. When we read Lamentations, we join in a song of suffering and begin the process of being rebuilt and reconciled. We get grammar for how to talk about it rather than just like stuffing it down or screening it out. We inherit a biblical vocabulary, words we don't normally have for ourselves to express the depths of our soul, ways to help us articulate our desires, our longings, our fears, and our hopes. But like, like any language, Sometimes we need to receive we, we need to receive it before we can produce it and and that's good news because the Bible has all sorts of language for us to learn how to pray and to express ourselves like maybe that's if if lament is the primary way Christians talk um, the the primary mode of 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 that speech is prayer that, that's how we bring ourselves to God and as we learn how to pray, there's there's all these resources, and Israel's psalm book is maybe maybe the best resource for this. So a lot, I've also like I've encountered a lot of people who 
don't feel very biblically literate and they're really intimidated by it. So they just don't read the Bibles because there's just so many steps to understanding. And that's, that's probably a good thing because that means you can read the Bible for the rest of your life and still get stuff from it. But if there's a, if there's a way into this, I, w- I would say it's probably got to be the Psalms because this is the way Israel prays and sings together and does so with all of their emotions, all of their heart, all of their soul, all of their mind, and all of their strength. So if you want to know how to pray, for instance, joy, the Christian way to pray joy is through praise. I think there's some slides for this, Nate. Are there some slides? Oh, Oh, I I can't see it up there. Sorry. Um, The Christian way to, to pray joy is through praise, hence Psalm 100. And we'll go through this pretty fast, but you can copy down these psalms for yourself and and explore this. The Christian way to pray prosperity is through thanksgiving, like Psalm 30. You turn my wailing into dancing. Or if you're trying to pray about a personal need, it's through, we do that through supplication. Hear my prayer, Lord, listen to my cry for mercy. Or if you're praying for others, it's intercession. Psalm 5. Bless the righteous. If you want to pray through your guilt, it's through confession. So we have these psalms like David's Psalm in 51. And of course, how we pray our suffering is through lamentation. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think one thing that helps me in this and is, is kind of as you continue to, to learn these, these resources and these rhythms and, and you know how to, to, to call on these things when you need them. Like that's the biggest thing um, in any sort of learning is to get comfortable enough with the resources so you know... Uh, kind of metaphorically where to flip when you need those words. But two things stuck out to me under all of this. That none of this is beyond or apart from Jesus. It's not unimportant that these very psalms would have been Jesus' emotional and spiritual vocabulary. This is the way Jesus talked Many of these, the ones even just listed, express themselves in the ministry of Jesus and are recorded in the Gospels. In, in fact, the, the last psalm of lamentation finds itself on Jesus' lips on the cross as he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you see what he did there? He took the psalmist's words which were no doubt very real and serious business, but whoever wrote those words was feeling that sort of abandonment, that sort of anxiety, that sort of suffering and fear. And he took them and he re-expressed them for all of humanity. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think this is why lamentation is the quintessential Christian language. Because at the very climax of Jesus' life, the very moment of his most faithful embrace of God's mission to heal this world, 
when someone pierced him, these are the words that came out. And because they came out of Jesus, the one who had been with God from all eternity in the beginning, and in whom all things are summed up and held together, Jesus the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, so our suffering, in our suffering and through our suffering, we can share with others a place in the life of God. It does, our suffering doesn't surprise God. It's not alien to God anymore because Jesus suffered with us and for us. We now share a common language with Jesus, or, or maybe more accurately, he shares it with us. Our how long doesn't hit God's ears as a hollow complaint or an impatient, like, are we there yet, like a kid does in a car? But instead, it, it hits God's ears as creation groaning towards redemption and healing. Creation recognizing, and we're part of creation, recognizing our need of saving, our need and our hope for a savior. So in Lamentations 4, when the narrator shifts, there's a shift in the book. Um, most, most of the early Lamentations uh, stuff is, is kind of a report of all these things that happened to Jerusalem. But in Lamentations 4, the, na- the narrator shifts to the first, or to the first person plural. It's the first time they've remembered together in Lamentations. Say, our eyes failed while we were looking. We watched for salvation. Our steps were tracked. We could no longer walk. Our end had drawn near. Our days were done. Our hunters were fast. But then that shift, it shifts to the Lord's chosen one the very breath in our lungs who was caught in their traps. I think this shift, this is like a Good Friday report for us, this shift from from our despair to the Lord's chosen one who was caught in their traps. This is the report from the foot of the cross. This is ground zero for how we hoped salvation might come, but it's also the epicenter for how healing will now permeate and spread throughout all creation. From the Lord's anointed, caught in the same traps of sin and despair and death that we're tangled in. But little did we know, as we were having the very breath knocked out of us, And Jesus was heaving his last breath that God was working salvation through sacrifice. That God was working beauty through brokenness. This is is the sort of hope and imagination that Lamentations funds. That it gives us us energy and, and ability for. The other thing I think we learn is that Because of that, we're reconfigured around this dead, but then eternally risen Jesus. That's what it means when we say things like, like we're the body of Christ. If you read the New Testament, that's what the church is known as, the body of Christ. Or or we might just even talk about it when we're downstairs at Potluck, that we're this 
his body fellowshipping together. It means that if we're the body of Christ, like this is what Father Emmanuel is saying, but this is also this logic of us joining with the death of Christ so that we can join with the risen Christ in that as parts of Christ's body, we, we both exhibit the ability to suffer well and the ability to turn that suffering towards God into hope and into healing. This is why lamentation should be our language. Sure, praise expresses joy and thanksgiving expresses the marvelous riches of our inheritance, but mostly, mostly lamentation Christianly sings our suffering to God. And when you start singing, hopefully you'll start to hear other voices chime in. Maybe that's, that should be the uh, kind of the incentive to move up when you come into Oak Church on Sundays is because you can hear other people better if you sit in the front. I promise this is true. Eric, you'll never hear anyone behind you when you're in the far back row. But if you sit towards the front, you hear people singing and they typically, if you have a voice like mine, they sound better than you. But, but they're also expressing these, these hopeful words. That, that's Psalm 126 that we sang about how our, our, our weeping can be turned into to joy, songs of joy as we go out. And you get to hear that kind of in, in surround sound. Like that's what it means to be in this body that knows how to lament together. That's actually what language is, is for. It's that sort of communication, right? Like we could, we could write perfect words on a page, but, but ultimately <laughs> language is, is to converse. It's to have a, a two-way conversation. It's, it's for, for communion. <laughs> it's for sharing. It's for participation. And this is what God has done with the word made flesh, is, has brought us into communion, has let us share our wounds and share our words so that we, we start speaking the same language to each other. And even that way, even when we're not in that place of despair or in that place of hurt, that when someone else is speaking that language, and sometimes it might even just be body language, we, we, we kind of know what's going on. And we can kind of step in and, and share some of that load. I think this is why Paul's letter to the Galatians goes from, in chapter 2, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. This life I live in the body, I live by faith, by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It goes from that. And then in chapter 6, there's this exhortation, carry each other's burdens so you will fulfill the law of Christ. Like this is, this is team. This is participation. Because you've been crucified with Christ, because you've been hidden in his death and raised to new life in him, then you're to bear each other's burdens. Then you're to join this song. Then you're to speak this language. Then you're to communicate because you're in communion. We don't do this very often because we're private people. I'm like a really private person when it comes to that. But also because when you gather a lot of different people together, there's a, a lot of different people experiencing a lot of different things. So it feels 
like your lament might not fit in that. It, it, it might just kind of blindside someone or come out of nowhere. Or there's the feeling that everyone else has far too much going on for themselves, uh, far too much heaviness to lift anything more. But here's the thing. We've seen in Christ, first we need not fear suffering in public. Because when Jesus was on the cross, that was suffering in public par excellence, right? There's all this royal language in the Gospels about Jesus being enthroned and lifted up. But when he was enthroned, his crown was a crown of thorns and his throne was a cross. So we need not fear suffering in public. Because it was on that cross that Jesus actually exposed the powers and principalities, those things that kind of hold us down and keep us apart. He exposed them. He made a mockery of those things. But also in Christ, we see that there's more than enough. That's, that's one of the things the resurrection tells us. That the end of the story is not the end of the story and that there's more than enough. There's hope and there's possibility. In this world of grace that God has made and is remaking, there are margins, even when it doesn't seem like it. That being in the body of Christ comes with the trust that even when your slate seems full to me, if I'm hurting, you'll still have some bandwidth. You'll still have some energy and some resources. Maybe not to fix it. Some things can't be fixed. But at bare minimum that you'll be with me in it. That's what it means to be part of the body of Christ. That when I'm suffering that you'll suffer with me because I'm suffering. But you also might help me out of it too. So we communicate, and in communicating, we share our words and we share our wounds as Christ's body. I want to just close with, with an update, and I, I didn't really know that this was happening. You can come up, Jay. Um, but uh, last, last Sunday, I think, and Jay can fill you in more on this, um, Bren found out that her brother was really really sick, kind of critically so, and has been dealing with that this week. And with these things, it's always kind of hard to know how to bring other people into that. And and as I've touched base with Bren this week, uh, it, there's always in me this, this want, this kind of need to say, well, what can I do? And when she just says nothing, you can, you can keep praying, uh, that kind of feels helpless. But um, I, I, I'd just love from you an update just to, to help us know how to pray, um, how to join in um, that, and, and how to support you guys. Yeah, appreciate it. And uh, thank you all for, for being here. Thank you for being a community where we can come to this. I know that has been very helpful for, uh, for Bryn. For my part, I know being there in the in the thick of it with family, that's the question I've asked myself: What can I, I say? What can I do? And um, there is no good thing to uh, say or do. I guess my 
and take away. But uh, we have appreciated uh, people's prayers and thoughts. It's, uh, it's weird because it's not really a tangible thing, but we, we still feel it and recognize it. So, uh, and I, I apologize for those of you who are kind of coming in on it. Uh, don't mean to go from zero to, uh, to 60, but some of you have probably heard this from the, the grapevine. And um, I think it's, uh, it is not a, uh, it's not a good situation. The, uh, when he went into his uh, diabetic coma, then everything started uh, crashing, his brain, his body, and everything. And uh, he made it very explicit to his parents before, long ago, without any foresight of this, that it's not a life that he wants to live. It's not a, a life. It's an existence. That's not something for him, especially as a person who was very uh, intelligent. I think his bar was that if he could not read a book and understand it, then that was not, was not his life. And so very difficult to see uh, a uh, mom and dad have to make arrangements to bury their son. That's essentially what is going to happen. Uh, Saturday, just yesterday, was the day where they signed the papers. There's a 48-hour, uh, I guess, waiting period that's protocol for doctors. It makes sense. And so, so uh, they'll, they'll be waiting. It's kind of the, the, uh, the theme of the season. But now it's, it's waiting for an additional uh, two, actually three days. Three days because uh, if it was two days, it would land on somebody's birthday. Nobody wants that, that burden. So it'll be It'll be three days when they call off life support. And that'll make it Tuesday, I'm guessing probably in the afternoon. And so I think that's something that uh, we would we would ask for your prayers and support on for Tuesday afternoon sometime. And uh, for the, the Wednesday gathering in the morning, I think that is, that is what we would, we would offer there. That will be a... That will be the day when I think a lot will will happen. So it's uh yeah it's it is a difficult thing to figure out what to to do. I myself I'm kind of figuring out what I can do from afar. I know that Bryn is uh, working very hard to help her family. She has uh, Benjamin with her, and that's hard. So I think that's a, a prayer in and of itself that she would just be able to keep that ship going. I guess uh, the other the other part, the kind of the, the distant prayer, the how long prayers would just be that we would uh, just one day be in a world where um, mothers would not have to bury their sons, where fathers would not have to make funeral arrangements for their children, because it's very painful thing to watch, but nonetheless, I think that you helping us with that prayers and support will be very good.
And I think the the, the last thing with uh, uh, with Kevin, since his funeral will, will be probably on Saturday, it's kind of the pivot point that you were mentioning. I think there's something maybe it will come from that because he was he was an odd bird. He was a interesting fellow, and so when people ask what that would look like, his funeral, um, he asked the question of what would what would he want it to be like? And he, much like me, is uh, a little bit nerdy. And so uh, he uh, dressed as a full-on pirate for things that you don't need to dress like a pirate for. I don't know what they were exactly, but just things where, oh, it's Kevin. He is a pirate. And so for his funeral, there will be a pirate theme that I'm interested to see how plays out. I know we've already ordered a parrot costume for Benjamin. This is, he will never dress as a parrot for another funeral, but this is this is Kevin, and so we want to we want to honor him in that, and uh, we want to uh, just be present for the family. And uh, I think that that's what um, that's what. We appreciate you all doing as well as just being there in prayer and support now, especially on Tuesday, certainly on Wednesday. Thanks, Chris. Let me let me pray for you and for Kevin and your family. Uh, Lord, we we lift up the Pendricks and the Myers family. Uh, we pray for Kevin that he might find uh, peace in your embrace. We pray that your spirit might comfort that family, be with Bryn, be with Jay, be with Benjamin, be with Bryn's family and her parents. Father, uh, that you might use Ben, uh, Benjamin is a source of, of hope and joy, even in the midst of, of suffering and grief, um, that he also might um, be, uh, for Bren, um, a, a welcomed um, place of, of care and, and something uh, to do in these times. Uh, Father, we, we don't have any better prayers than just your, your presence with them so that's that's what we pray for in jesus name amen